Well, please turn to Proverbs 27, Proverbs 27 in your Bibles. And Len and Larry and Aaron have some Bibles as they make their way down the aisle. If you need one, just get their attention. They'll get a copy of the Scriptures to you, marked to Proverbs 27, so that you can follow along. We are in the midst of a series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Living Wisely in a Foolish World through God's book on wisdom called Proverbs. I have on my bookshelf a book with the title Bowling Alone. That's right, bowling. Three holes in the thing, ten pins. The subtitle is The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And this book, Bowling Alone, makes the case that our stock of social capital the very fabric of our connections with each other, that that social network has plummeted, and that it's impoverished our lives and our communities as well. Now, the author is a Harvard professor, and in this book he draws on, no kidding, half a million interviews, 500,000 interviews over 25 years. No doubt it's a study funded by the government, your tax dollars hard at work, But these 500,000 interviews over a quarter century show that we now sign fewer petitions, we belong to fewer organizations that meet together, like churches overall, that we know our neighbors less, that we meet with friends less frequently, and we even socialize with our families less often. And here's where the title Bowling Alone comes from. We're even bowling by ourselves. He says that more Americans are bowling than ever before, but they used to bowl most often in leagues. They don't bowl in leagues as much now. So this message is about why we should all be in bowling leagues. But really, hold that thought for for just a bit about the, the tearing apart of our relationships. While I remind you where the seed was planted that has resulted in this rift in our relationships and our social fabric. A few weeks ago, I compared the Bible to a mirror, a portrait, and a window. Some of you may remember that. The Bible serves as a mirror in that when I look into its pages, I see myself, you see yourself as I truly am, as you truly are. And it serves as a portrait because it shows me a picture of Christ. It shows me the way that I'm supposed to be. And it's like a window through which we see the world. It's not just a transparent window, but it's tinted. So that I see the world, if I follow what the Bible says, through a biblical lens, a biblical perspective. I have literally a biblical worldview, a view of the world. And so there is the way it is with me personally and with the world in general, the Bible tells me. The way it is. But it also tells me the way it's supposed to be for me, for you, and for our world. The Bible tells me the way it's supposed to be. And it tells me that we were made, we were supposed to be, we were designed for community. To live in relationship to one another. 
You all remember when God created the first man and the first woman and he placed them in this garden paradise. And he first creates Adam and he looks at Adam and he says to Adam, this is the only time God says there's something not good. If you remember over and over and God made it and he said it was good. And then he said it was very good. But then God says this about Adam. It is not good to be alone. And so I will make a helper suitable for him. We know that the Lord God went ahead and did that. Now we normally associate that with marriage, and rightly so. God is literally giving away the first bride to this first man. But this principle applies to all humanity, whether married or not. We are made to be social beings, and we were made to be in relationship with one another. And so if you bowl, you were made to do it with other people. But sin messes up everything. The Lord God had fellowship with the first man and the first woman. But immediately after they chose to to disobey God, everything radically changes. Everything changes between them and God. Between them and each other. It changes between them and their world. And so now that humanity that had known God and who had related to Him freely and openly, they didn't know they were naked. They didn't care, if you recall. And now they hide from Him. Some of the saddest words in the Bible are Adam responding to God's call. Adam, where are you? God knows where He is. And Adam says, I was naked and I hid myself. The creature who was made for fellowship, for community with the Creator, is now hiding from the Creator and hiding from each other. And blame shifting with each other. And so you all know the sad tale. Adam, what have you done? The woman. First two words out of his mouth, the woman. Woman, what have you done? The serpent. As I said to my class on Wednesday night, we all know who made the woman. We all know who made the serpent. It's an implied accusation against the Creator. And as a result now of sin, those who were made to be in community, relationship, companionship, partnership with one another begin to use God's good gifts for our own ends rather than for His ends. And so in the realm of things, in the realm of possessions, I now hoard and even value His gifts more than the giver of those gifts. So that money becomes a rival for my devotion to God. And other things do as well. Pleasure. Reputation. Rather than using what God has given for His purposes, we now pervert it for our own ends. Now you all remember as we've been looking through the book of Proverbs what wisdom is. Wisdom is skill for living, skillful living. It is using what has been given by God as He directed for His ends. But now because of sin, I use God's gifts foolishly. Not using them as directed, misdirecting and misappropriating them for me rather than for God. So now this good gift of community of companionship, of partnership, of relationship with others is characterized by hiding 
by deceit I don't want to be with other people I don't want to reveal my true self because people can hurt me the same way that I can hurt others and so in the words of that great theologian Billy Joel honesty is such a lonely word Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard. But it's mostly what I need from you, he says. I can now use people for my own ends, rather than to lead them to God and to assist them in growing in godliness. And thus in 2010, you have books like Bowling Alone. We need God's help for us to see the value of the companionship, partnership, friendship, relationships that He has provided as His good gift. Let's ask Him to help us, and we'll look into God's Word together. Father, we thank You for this time that we can have to open the pages of Your Holy Word. Lord, help us to remember that the book into which we look now is not just any book. It's Your Word. It has been revealed by you. It has been inspired by you. It has come from you. Your words are true. Absolutely true. They're words that I need and they're words that we need. And help us as we look to their application in this area of our relationships that have been distorted by virtue of sin entering into your world. Point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the answer to that disintegration that has occurred because of sin. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The social component for which we were made is so important for us as God's image bearers that God gives instruction in His Word for how we're to pursue our relationships and what we need to do to remedy them when they've gone wrong. God wants us to be restored in our relationship to Him and to each other. Our relationship to Him will guide our interaction with others. And our friendship with each other is designed to strengthen our fellowship with God. I'm going to say that part again. Our relationship to Him, to God, will, if properly placed, if properly pursued, our relationship to God will guide our interaction with others. And our friendship with each other is designed to strengthen our fellowship with God. So sometimes we ask the question, hey, what are friends for? What are friends for? I have an outline inserted in your program. Will you take a look at that? It has a take-home truth there. What are friends for? Here's what friendship is. It's helping another become like Jesus. What are friends for? Friends are for helping each other to become like Christ. And I had you turn to Proverbs 27, and I ask you to look at verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The rubbing of iron against iron produces, over time, a sharp edge. And friendship, and I know verse 17 says that 
one man sharpens another, and we may think that's only for males, but it's for males and females, humanity. And so the rubbing of iron against iron produces the sharp edge, and friendship for both males and females is designed to sharpen us. It includes instruction in matters of wisdom between one another in our relationships, which helps a person navigate through life successfully. It includes giving and receiving correction for foolish behavior and speech among one another in our relationships of friendship. And so one commentator says this, the wisdom enterprise is a community effort. The enterprise to attain wisdom as given in the book of Proverbs, God's book of wisdom, is not something to be pursued alone, but it is a community effort. Now what's assumed in a proverb like verse 17 of chapter 27? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Well, here's what's assumed. We all need help, and we need to be sharpened. The first assumption is we're not as sharp as we should be. Every one of us needs to be sharpened further. And do you know that that was always true even before the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world? We were made to be social beings in relationship, but now those relationships are pursued in a remedial way to remedy what has gone wrong by the entrance of sin. So it's not simply to help each other with information, but rather with correction. We all need help. As humans, we have always needed help. Now we need help to remedy the effects of sin, sharpening one another in our relationships. So that's the first thing that's assumed in this proverb. We all need help. Here's the second thing. It's mutual. One man sharpens another. It is not in our relationships that you need help, but I don't. Or I need help, but you don't. None of us are where we need to be. None of us have arrived. And God has given this good gift of relationship, of friendship, in order to help us get where we need to go. Friendship is not one way. It may be tilted, indeed. It may be that one in a relationship is more mature than the other. But we all need help, and we all need to be helped. And so because that is so important, It is absolutely necessary to do what I say in your outline. The very first point. To approve your friends before you choose them. This issue of relationship is a a gift that God has given in order to move us where we need to go. And it's so important that we need to be careful in the choosing of those with whom we'll engage in that process. Approve your friends before you choose them. Now why? Because as we're going to see, a friend's character can affect your own character. Don't turn there yet, because I want you to stay in Proverbs 27. I want you to see a couple of other verses there. But just jot down this, this verse. Proverbs 13 and verse 20. Proverbs 13, 20. It says this. He who walks with the wise grows wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. Why is it so important to check out what friends I'm going to choose very carefully before I engage with them? Because he who walks with the wise grows wise. A companion of fools suffers harm. I say in your outline, good friends are beneficial. 
They're beneficial in that they help us to improve, and it's mutual. We help them as well. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. This is saying, the first line contrasted with the the second line, the first portion of verse 5 contrasted with the second portion is saying that rebuke or correction is loving if you love someone you will rebuke them that's what it's saying you'll be willing to engage in correcting them for their benefit good friends are beneficial now has it ever occurred to you that the people you hang out with are always the only people in the world who have it just right. I mean, when you're at work and you're around the water cooler or you go to lunch with your friends at work and you're complaining about everybody else and your boss and what an idiot your boss is and all of that, those of us at the water cooler and those of us at the table all know the deal. Whatever we are talking about, we're right. Whatever that person across the table from me says, they're right. Oh, I hear you, sister. Oh, you're right. Tell me about it. Same thing at the water cooler. Nobody wants to correct anybody. Nobody wants to say, you know, that's not right. That's not correct. And let me tell you, no, better let God tell you that enemies multiply kisses. Those who truly care are willing to say, as we're going to see later on, the hard things. Rebuke and correction are loving. The verse tells us in verse 6 that these are wounds. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. They're called wounds because they might hurt. It's sometimes direct. You cannot do that. You can no longer continue in this particular path. It is contrary to what God Almighty says in His Word. You can't do this. It may hurt. It's a wound. It's directed, but note it's direct, but notice it's directed to them, not about them. Which is the way most of us want to go about it, don't we? We would much rather talk about somebody than to somebody. But a true friend, a faithful friend, a trusted friend, is one who will talk to you rather than about you. And verse 6 says these wounds that hurt and are direct can be trusted. Why can they be trusted? Because they're constructive. They're designed to construct. They're designed to build up. They are in your best interest. They are coming from one who has shown that he or she has your best interest at heart. Verse 9 of Proverbs 27 says this. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. A true friend will give earnest, honest, true counsel to one about whom he cares deeply. And the one who has been wise enough to choose his friends and his companions carefully will love that counsel like he loves perfume and incense bringing joy to the heart. 
good friends are beneficial. And therefore we must approve our friends before we choose them. Conversely, good friends are beneficial, but as I say in your outline, bad friends are harmful. We turn to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. This issue of relationship is a gift from God, but it is so important and so potent that we must be very careful about the friends that we choose as our closest confidants. Good friends are beneficial, bad friends are harmful. And so we see these character traits in an individual. This is not the person that we choose to be our best friend. It describes a bitter person, a hot-tempered man, easily angered, someone who is bitter, someone who is complaining often. We turn a couple of pages over to chapter 24. Chapter 22 describes bitter people, and it warns against them. Now chapter 24 and verse 21. Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious. One version translates that this way. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Now what does that mean? Those who are rebellious versus those who are given to change. It's describing not the bitter as we saw in chapter 22, but now in chapter 24, it's describing the discontent. Those who are given to change are those who say, nothing's ever right. It needs to change. It should be different. Nothing's right with my life now. And so you hang around them. How's it going? It's never good. Discontented. Do not join yourself to such a person. And so God warns us, improve your friends before you choose them. Now let's make some application of this. Parents, one of the best things that we can do for our children is to assist them in the choosing of their friends. They must choose their friends wisely. The earlier they choose wisely with their friends, the better off they will be in using this good gift of God for its good purpose, to sharpen them. Be careful in the friends that you're allowing your children to make. Sometimes we say things like, you know, Joey or Susie, no offense to any Joeys or Susies. Joey or Susie is... They started hanging around with the wrong crowd. But see, we've got to realize this, that when a child desires to hang around with the wrong crowd, that says something about the child. It's interesting that when we hang around with the wrong crowd, we never include ourselves with the crowd. But see, that crowd includes us now. And other people look at it and they say, you're part of the crowd. The desire to hang around with, quote, the wrong crowd says something about our children. And so our children so desperately need the gospel. 
the change of heart initially and regularly that motivates them to see what God sees and love what God loves. This has obvious application to marriage, right? Choose your friends carefully. Choose those with whom you'll associate very carefully. Marriage is designed by God to be permanent. If you engage in that and you choose unwisely, God will grow you through that if you choose to follow Him, even in difficulty. But you must understand, it will be a hard way. Choosing good friends, though, does not mean that we've chosen perfect friends, ever. We can choose the best of friends, and we should. But it never will mean that we've chosen perfect friends. And so, we are all in need of help, and we all need to give help. We all need to help others change, and we all need others to help us change. And that's why I say in the second point in your outline, we should approve our friends before we choose them, but then secondly, improve your friends after you choose them. Now, you may be sitting there going, really? You go into a relationship and you say, I'm going to change this person. Well, again, the assumption of all of Scripture is that God has given this good gift for us to help each other, for us to sharpen each other. So we all need that. But I'm not talking about an overbearing, I'm going to radically change you into my image. We're not talking about changing, as we will see, someone into your image. We're looking for all of us to be changed into his image. So you guys have heard the story of the gal who was getting married. They were at the wedding rehearsal. She was very nervous that she was going to forget something the next day at the actual ceremony. And so the reverend who was running the thing said, look, just, re- just remember this. That as you start to walk down the aisle, there will be a change in the key of the hymn. So you come down the aisle, there will be a change in the key of the hymn, and that will be the time for you to make your way all the way up front. And so she just kept saying to herself, the aisle, a change, and hymn. The aisle, change, hymn. And she just kept repeating to herself, I'll change him. And she's walking up the aisle. She just kept saying, looking at the groom, I'll change him. And many people go into marriage that way, don't they? Or any relationship. I'm going to change you, but the objective is not to be changed into God's image, but to be changed into my image. That's not what we're saying. When we say improve your friends after you choose them, there are some assumptions that go into this. Let me give them to you. The first is that none of us is where we need to be. When we say we need to improve our friends, and our friends need to improve us, the assumption is none of us is where we need to be. The second assumption is this. I can evaluate where someone is. It's legitimate to evaluate, or to use the J word, to judge where someone is. We'll see why in just a bit. But the assumptions are that I'm not where I need to be, you're not where you need to be, that it secondly is legitimate for me to evaluate to judge, and then based on these, to take action. And that's what I have in the three points in your outline. That none of us is where we need to be, and so we need to understand where they need to go, A. And that it's legitimate to evaluate. And so we evaluate where they are, and then we take action. See, we help them to get there. 
first understand where they and we need to go. What's the objective of all of life, including this good tool that God gives us in life called friendship and iron sharpening iron? The objective is for us to be remade into the image of the God who originally created us. That's the objective. For us to be remade into His image. Because of the entrance of sin, because of the fall, the image has now been marred. Not obliterated, but marred. It's now been distorted. It now has to be remade. And God is in this reclamation process. And He includes in part of reclaiming the image the interaction between people who know Him and are gradually becoming like Him and are helping each other to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So where do we need to go? (laughs) We need to become every day and every week and every month and every year more like Jesus. And that's why the Bible tells us those God foreknew, He also predestined to what? Be conformed to the likeness of His Son. The Bible tells us that we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. This is what sets the agenda. The agenda for all of my relationships and all of your relationships is to see those with whom you have companionship become like Jesus, not like you. Not making them into your image. Not causing them to do what you want. Very often our agenda is, look, you really annoy me. So you need to get it together. We can't be friends anymore. We've got to find some accommodation for you to become less annoying. Got it? Trying to be direct. Faithful to the wounds of a friend. I'm wounding you. The agenda is to become like Christ. That's where they need to go. That sets the agenda. Then we evaluate where they, where we are. Now that raises this question, is it legitimate to evaluate where anybody is? In our culture, the answer is no, absolutely not. Are you kidding? Jesus said, I don't know any other verses in the entire Bible, but I know one verse. This is most people in our culture, they know one verse. This is the one verse they've learned, judge not that you be not judged. So whatever else the Bible says, I know that you can't judge, evaluate where anybody is. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, I'm going to show you some verses that say it is okay and indeed necessary to evaluate, to judge. But why did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, judge not that you be not judged? Here's why. If you read the context of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is not talking about prohibiting judgment per se. He is prohibiting wrong judgment, hypocritical judgment in particular. And so he was talking to hypocrites. And he was saying you cannot judge hypocritically. But the same Jesus said in John 7.24, make a right judgment. In fact, just before that phrase, make a right judgment, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, make a right judgment. So the question is not, do we evaluate, do we judge? The question is, on what basis, what kind of judgment? 1 Corinthians 10, 2 and verse 15, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Think about it. 
The Bible has warnings over and over again to avoid things like false teachers. How can I possibly know a false from a true teacher unless I do something like judging? I have to evaluate. By their fruits you shall know them, Jesus said. So we've got to get out of this cultural nonsense that says you can't evaluate. We don't need to be judgmental. I'm better than you. Uh Uh-uh. But we do have to love one another enough to say what you're doing is wrong. The path you're taking is incorrect. And you soften it when you approach an individual with an issue that needs to be changed when you are humble enough to say, look, I want you to improve to be more like Jesus and I want you to help me to improve to be more like Jesus. This is not me pointing my finger at you. This is us helping each other. And so then you help them to get there. Where do we need to go? Where are we? And then thirdly in your outline, we need to help each other get there. Now I want to introduce some of you to a term and remind some of the rest of you because you know the term. There's a term in your New Testament that describes this process of using our relationships in order to help one another get where we need to go. It's a Greek word. We're going to see how it's variously translated in the New Testament. But the Greek word is this, nuthetel. And it's N-O-U-T-H-E-T-O. N-O-U-T-H-E-T-E-O. Excuse me. Nuthetel. N-O-U-T-H-E-T-E-O. This word nuthetel means that we are willing to confront lovingly someone else with truth for the purpose of change. I'll put it on the screen at the end of our time, but that's the definition. It's loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Now, how's it used in Scripture? Well, here are some of the ways it's used. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul, who wrote this, says this, I, Paul, am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and you are competent to, and there's the word, nuthateo, one another, to, and it's translated there, instruct. Some translations have that word as counsel. You are competent to counsel one another. Now, when he says there, you are full of goodness and you're complete in knowledge. Obviously, Paul doesn't mean you know everything. But Paul is saying that you have access to, by virtue of having been united to Christ and having his Holy Spirit, all of which he's talked about in the previous pages of the letter to the Romans, by virtue of that, you have everything you need in order to be an effective counselor in the life of another. Now, who are these people? Well, these must have been the people with lab coats on that were professional psychologists in Rome. But notice what Paul says about it. My brothers, just the brothers and sisters in Rome, you yourselves, it's just the regular folk in Rome, just like it's the regular folk here. Our church's theme verse is Colossians 1.28, and it uses this word, Nuthetel. We proclaim him... Nuthetoing, admonishing, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's why. We want to present everyone perfect, mature in Christ. 
The goal is to be like Christ. That's the goal for our church. That's the goal for us as individuals. That's the goal in our relationships. And so we we lovingly confront with the truth. Just a couple of more. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you brothers, and now it's translated warn, those who are idle. In the context it's referring to those who are directly disobedient to what God has said. Warn them, confront them lovingly with the truth. And so what's that full definition? Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. I'd like to give some applications as final comments. To do this, to engage in this in our relationships, it means that I am going to have to love you more than I need you. In order to engage in this hard thing of loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change, I need to love you more than I need you. Now, what do I I mean by that? Well, very often we say, you know, I could never say something like that because I love them too much. Uh Uh-uh. You hear this and hear this carefully. When we are unwilling to say the hard truth, to have the faithful wounds of a friend, it is not because we love them too much, it's because we love ourselves too much. And we don't want to risk it. I need you. What if they get mad? But love says I'll risk it. Because I love you more than I need you. Love means doing what's in the best interest of another. We need to be the kind of people who are willing to do the hard thing in the best interest of another. Some time ago I read an illustration of a fellow that was in Lyndon Baines Johnson, President Johnson's cabinet. President Johnson said, Whenever I want to be told the truth, I go to a particular guy in my cabinet. His name is Bill Moyers. He's still alive. Don't know that Bill Moyers was an ordained Baptist minister. He left uh, Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Texas to take a position in the Johnson cabinet. And he was the one guy that Johnson said would tell me the truth rather than what I wanted to hear. It's a story told that at a dinner, Johnson had asked Moyers to say the blessing. And Moyers is praying, and Johnson yells, in the middle of the prayer, speak up, Bill. I can't hear you. And Moyers replied, I wasn't speaking to you. <laughs> and if you know Johnson, that actually had to be clarified, that he wasn't speaking to him. There's a story told about uh, Johnson having just come up behind somebody and startled the person. Now, I'm just going to tell you what the person said. They use the Lord's name. I don't speak this way, but this is just what they said. Johnson came up, startled this person, and the person said, Lord God Almighty. And Johnson said, that's right, and don't you forget it. And so Moyers had to clarify. If we're going to engage in this, it means we're going to have to love people more than we need them. And we have to be willing to tell them the hard truth. Moyers is an example of that with Johnson. Here's another one in your Bible. You remember Nathan speaking to David? 
the prophet Nathan going to King David? Nathan's risking it, isn't he? But Nathan loved the truth more than he loved his own security. And so he was willing to tell even King David the truth. And so in order to do this, we have to love people more than we need them. Now, if I have my needs met in Jesus Christ, then I can risk telling you the truth. You see, if I really believe that ultimately all I need is Jesus, then I can risk it. Now, we all need one another. We all need to have a role play, but I don't ultimately need you. You don't ultimately need me. Ultimately, who do we need? The Lord Jesus. And if I believe that, and if I believe He's the one who has put me in these relationships, and He's the one, if, the, if, if folks abandon me for truth, He can give me new relationships. If I believe that, if I know that my needs are met in Christ, then I can love you more than I need you. And so as a parent, I will not take the approach that says with my children, I'm going to be permissive because I love you. So what are friends for? Well, here's what friends are for. Friends do not let friends sin. You know, we've got the bumper stickers, friends don't let friends drive drunk. Friends don't let friends sin. And God has placed us in relationship to sharpen each other, to move us toward the image of Christ. And so I ask you, how are you choosing your friends? And having chosen your friends, are you using that relationship to improve yourself and to improve them? For some of us, we need to reevaluate the friendships that we have. We're with bitter people, we're discontented people. You want to lovingly confront that, if it's a brother or sister, that person with the truth. But if they will not hear, you need to reevaluate that relationship as your closest confidant. And then if you're in relationships with folks who are willing to hear the truth, then we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to communicate it? Sometimes risk it and sometimes make them mad, though true friends only do so temporarily. But am I willing to risk it? And lastly, am I willing to live my life, including in my relationships, for the wise purpose for which I was placed here? To reflect the image of a beautiful and holy God. He's remaking that image in us. He is using our relationships to remake that image. Am I going to pursue my relationships for that end? Now, in order for any of that to happen, you must begin a relationship with the God from whom all of us come into this world estranged, apart from God, separated from Him because of our sin. How do I establish this relationship with God with whom relationship in the garden was broken for Adam and Eve and all of their progeny? Here's how. I realize that I'm their children, that I'm I'm their child, that I have sinned. I recognize, though, that Jesus Christ has paid in full the payment for my sin, past, present, and future. And I say to God, I want to follow you, not go my own way. That's what repent means. You receive him into your life. You pray as we bow in a moment from your heart to God and ask him to forgive you, acknowledging your sin and that Christ is your Savior. And for our brothers and sisters who have done that, this might be a time of confession to say, Lord, I've not seen my friendships that way. Help me to have the courage to love more than need in order to see the image of Christ borne out in the life of those you've placed in my sphere of responsibility.
Let's bow together. Father, thank you for these sacred moments. To be able to open your book, to look therein, and to be chided, and to be convicted, to be rebuked. I have been. We have been. But Lord, you do it for your good purpose. You wound, you cut in order to heal. You wound us in order to excise the cancer that may be there spiritually. So that we can be like Christ. You give us this good gift of relationship, of friendship, in order for us to sharpen one another. Help us to use it that way, not misdirect it foolishly for our own ends. As a result of that, Lord, may we benefit. May those you bring into our circle benefit as well. We want to honor and glorify you in all areas of our lives, including the relationships you provide. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.